If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go with us tonight to the book of Job. The book of Job, if you did not receive the notes on your way in tonight, would you lift your hand? Our men would be happy to give you one. On Wednesday nights, we're taking a guided tour through the Bible. Each Wednesday, we stop in a different book. We have finished the books of law and the books of history, and tonight we come to the first book of wisdom, the book of Job. The subject of pain and suffering is a popular subject for one simple reason. We as human beings experience so much of it. From the moment we come into this world in blood and tears, to the last moment of grasping for breath in our deaths, we are surrounded by suffering. Joseph Parker, a pastor in England, counseled young preachers, in every pew there is a broken heart. Speak often to the suffering and you will never lack for a congregation. And that's true, isn't it? In every pew tonight, a broken heart. The works of authors like John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, Johnny Erickson Tata are timeless in their appeal because they are written by sufferers to sufferers and suffering is timeless. It's the one human experience we all share. One great sufferer wrote, man that is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. Man is born of trouble as the sparks fly upward. And that statement was written by a man named Job. And we'll study his life tonight. The book of Job deals with the age-old problem of pain. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do the righteous suffer? If God is good, why is there depression and disease, poverty and pain, loneliness and loss? I want to warn you, there are other books of the Bible that give more comprehensive and satisfying answers to those questions than Job does. But there is no answer more foundational or important to the problem of pain than the answer that's given in this book. Let me give you some background for a moment, if I can. Job is the first of five wisdom books. We said there are five books of law, 12 books of history, now five books of wisdom. These books are the heart of the Old Testament, not only because they're in the middle of the Old Testament, but also because they speak to the heart in a way that other books of the Old Testament perhaps cannot. In the books of wisdom, there are few laws to obey. There is almost no new history to learn. These books focus on the individual's relationship with God. They're not only books of wisdom, they're books of poetry meant to move the heart. The key refrain repeated in almost every book of wisdom is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you will find that statement in some way, shape, or form in all five books. Can I remind you tonight that God is the real source of wisdom? And unless he reveals wisdom to us, we are doomed to foolishness. Job makes a major contribution to the subject of wisdom because it teaches us about the inadequacy of human wisdom. It's one of the major themes of the book. We all think we're wise until we suffer. Then we start to learn how little we know. And Job and especially his three friends are going to learn that. Now the book of Job is unique in several ways, different from any other book of the Bible. It is set in the land of Uz, far away from Israel. You will not read about tabernacles or temples or patriarchs. You won't read about kings or priests or any of that. This story is almost completely divorced from the history of Israel. The key characters of this book are not from Israel, and there is no clear historical setting. It's something of a one-off, if I could say it that way. 
Its contribution to the Bible is not that it moves the main story of the Bible forward. Its main contribution is that it addresses the problem of pain, which may be our oldest and most deeply felt objection to the existence of the kind of God the Bible declares. Now, the problem of pain is not a complicated objection to Christianity. We can tell you why pain is in the world, can't we? We can tell you what God is going to do about pain. We can put it up on a whiteboard and it all makes sense philosophically and theologically. But all bets are off when you hold a screaming baby writhing in pain and you don't know how to help that baby. All bets are off when you check your child into Cook's children for chemo. All bets are off when you become the victim of unspeakable evil. Even the most theologically sound among us can work it all out on a whiteboard But when suffering visits our lives, we all ask God, if you're good, why this? If you could stop it, why didn't you? So the message of Job is a unique message, but absolutely essential if you're to trust in the true and living God. The human penman of this book is unknown. Some have surmised that Job himself wrote it. Others said Moses wrote it after receiving oral traditions. Some have put the writing of this book as late as the time of Solomon. Many scholars believe that Job lived before the time of Abraham or during that time. So he was perhaps uh, concurrent with Abraham. If Job did pen this book, it is the oldest book of the Bible. But the events that this book talk about are certainly chronologically the oldest events of the Bible. Now, um, let me say this last note about background. The theme of theodicy dominates this book. What is theodicy? A theodicy is a defense of God, especially in times of suffering. It really asks the question, how do we reconcile undeserved suffering with a God who is all-powerful and just? And Job and his three friends and Elihu are all trying to work out that complicated issue. How can we defend God when such evil exists in the world that God supervises? All right, let's talk about the theme, the landmark. The theme of Job is... Trusting God's wisdom in suffering. Trusting God's wisdom in suffering. Pain presents problems that are not easily solved. Suffering is an invitation to trust God when we cannot understand him. And that's vital. You know, in the book of Job, almost everyone thinks that they perfectly understand God. Satan thinks he knows why God blesses Job and why Job worships God. Uh, Job's three friends think that they understand exactly why Job is going through what he's going through. To them, the acts of God are as simple as a math equation. X plus Y equals Z. It's not until the end of the book and God shows up and talks a little bit about what he knows and we don't know that Job and his three friends realize they've been doing simple math while God has been doing calculus. For Job's part, he knows he doesn't understand what God is doing. But he demands that God explain it to him. (laughs) And God never does give Job an explanation. He gives Job instead something better. An invitation to trust in a wisdom that is far greater than his own. That is ultimately the solution to the problem of pain. Whatever God's ultimate purpose may be for the suffering you're enduring, it is always an invitation to a deeper level of trust in him. And that is the issue, not why it happened but what God intends for you to do because it happened. It was C.S. Lewis who said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, 
but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's an invitation. Trust in me. All right, let's look at the roadmap. Tonight, I've given you two outlines to the book of Job. One is on the front part. The other is on the back. The one on the front is a study outline, and it explains the major movements and divisions of the book, and it'll help you uh, when you are studying the book on your own to get a grasp on the big picture of what's happening. But on the back, I've given you a thematic outline that I think will help you understand what the book of Job means a little bit better than the study outline. And that's the one I want to share with you tonight. And I owe author Mark Dever uh, a debt because he explained the book of Job in three sentences. And that's how I'd like to explain it to you tonight. Chapters one and two, we could explain with this sentence, we often suffer. So we're going to be in Job chapter one. The opening scene in chapters one through two shifts five times from earth to heaven, back and forth, back and forth. Look at Job chapter one and verse one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep. And it's going to talk about his riches. Look at verse 4. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, everyone his way, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. We learn in these first few verses about Job's character. God's appraisal of Job is found in verse 1. He was perfect and upright. A man that feared God and eschewed evil. That is quite an appraisal, isn't it? You know, God never exaggerates. We often talk people up. God never did. God said these things about Job because these things were true. He goes down into biblical history with characters like Joseph and Daniel, men of high integrity and character. If you knew Job, if he were to attend church here, he would be perhaps the most sincere man in our church in his relationship to God, the most honest in his business, the most faithful to his family, a man that feared the Lord. In the next section, we learn about Job's calamities. Look at verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, and I take this to mean the angelic host. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for not, for nothing? Hast not thou made a hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he had, and he will curse thee to thy face. Satan basically says, God, Job's faith is transactional. He loves you for what you will do for him. If you send a trial to a man who expects and maybe even deserves a blessing, he'll curse you. Satan thinks he understands God and the way that God works. He's got him down in his little box. 
So God gives Satan permission to touch Job's possessions and his family. I remind you, yes, Satan is a lion, but he is a lion on a leash. He can't do anything apart from the sovereign permission of God. On one fateful day, you can read the story in the remainder of chapter 1. Job loses all of his money, all of his possessions, and ten children. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshiped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not or charged God foolishly. You might mark in chapter one the incidences of the little word fell. In verse 15, the Sabaeans fell. In verse 16, the fire of God is fallen. In verse 17, the Chaldeans fell. In verse 19, the house fell. And in 20, Job fell. When trouble fell on Job, Job fell on God. When trouble falls on you, you can fall on God. Well, Satan is persistent. He goes back to heaven and says, God, let me touch his body. God gives him permission. You can do it. The action returns to earth and Job wakes up the morning after losing everything and there are boils all over his body. It's not that, excuse me, it's not that the boils were the worst thing. The problem was the problem of compounding trouble. You understand the, the concept of compounding interest, don't you? When you're in debt, compounding interest gets you. And a $200 pair of shoes, if you don't pay your credit card bill, can become a $2,000 pair of shoes. As the months go by, the interest adds up. Well, Job lost his possessions. He lost his children. And as he's grieving those things, his body breaks out in boils. So terrible that the only relief he can get is to bust up pottery and to scrape the boils. All of this trouble compounding, one uh, messenger of bad news after another, and Job is almost at the breaking point. Let me say, be careful when you're speaking to people who are dealing with compounding grief. A very small thing can be the needle that breaks the camel's back. Be careful. Now, Job's suffering may be more sudden than most of us. He loses his money, loses his children, he loses his health, loses just about everything in one day. But can I tell you this? Job's suffering is no no more comprehensive than our suffering. It's more sudden, not more comprehensive. You do realize that unless the Lord Jesus returns, we're going to lose all the things that Job lost. (laughs) We're going to lose our health. We're going to lose our money. We're going to lose our family at the day of death. We are going to lose all the things that Job lost, and we should not expect otherwise. The Lord has given, and the Lord will take away. And the question is, how will we respond? May we bless the Lord as Job did. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. He took him a pot, sure, to scrape himself with all, and he sat down among the ashes. He can go no lower. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What, shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this did Job sin not with his lips. And just a reminder, have a little grace for Job's wife. At least she was there with Job. She hadn't jumped off a bridge. She hadn't gone to find someone who didn't have all that trouble. She was there for him. 
Job's answer to her is excellent. Suffering is the way of the world. God is sovereign over it. We have received so much good, we'll receive some bad too. This is no time to curse God. We need God. And if Job had done what his wife counseled him to do, the devil would have been right. But he wasn't right. Job retained his integrity. We read next about Job's comforters. Look at verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was coming to him, they came everyone from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, and the Temanites were famous for having wisdom. Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamanite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept. And they rent every one his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights. None spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Now these guys got off to a good start. Guys, how many friends do you have, even in a similar situation, would leave their city, come to where you are, rip their clothes, lift up their voices, and weep with you? They obviously had a close friendship, and I think they cared. These guys should have stayed quiet. A pat on the back and a listening ear and a warm meal would have done so much for Job than all of their sermonizing and explanations. Why, when we suffer, do we think that an explanation will help anything? It won't. They'll still be gone. We'll still be sick. An explanation will do nothing. And why do we think that others want to hear an explanation when they are suffering? They don't need an answer. They need a friend. And remember that. So the first statement is we often suffer. Maybe not as suddenly as Job does, but we will suffer in this world. Man that is born of women is a few days and full of trouble. In chapters 3 through 41, we learn that we sometimes understand. We often suffer. We sometimes understand. This is the real heart of the book. Chapter 3 is a lament from Job, and we can hardly blame him for lamenting. We can all understand that in moments like that, our theology may not be flawless, okay? Grief is talking. And the grace of God will talk back in time, if we'll be quiet enough to let it. Job's friends wouldn't. He said some things that apparently got under their crawl, and they thought they had to correct him. The next several chapters are a series of debates between Job and his friends. One of Job's friends will say something, Job will answer. Then the other friend will answer the answer. Then Job will answer the answer of the answer, and then Job's friend will answer, and so on. There are three cycles that go back and back, or back and forth, and round and round in that particular manner. On the final uh, particular cycle, one of the friends has nothing left to say, so he doesn't speak at all. Now, we don't have the time to get into all of their speeches tonight, so I'm going to give you the gist of the speeches that happen in this particular section. First, you have Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they represent the conventional wisdom of the day. These are aged men, renowned for their wisdom. They basically have three things to say to Job, and they say them over and over and over again with a lot of poetry and eloquence, but it basically boils down to three things. First, God is almighty and just. And is that true? Yes. He is all-powerful, and everything he does is right all the time. 
So we can say a big amen. The next point they make is that God rewards the righteous and punishes the sinful. Now that sounds right, but be careful. What they were saying is this, God only rewards the righteous and he always punishes the sinful. What is this? It's karma. It's the prosperity gospel in reverse. You do something good, God will give you something good. You do something bad, God is going to give you something bad. So if you're getting something bad, it's because you're doing something bad. If you're getting something good, it's because you're doing something good. God always blesses the righteous. He always punishes the sinful. Is that true? No, it's not. So God is almighty and just. He rewards the righteous and punishes the sinful. Therefore, Job, you must be sinful. No man could go through what you're going through without a sin problem. You must have sinned against God. So Job, what you need to do is repent. And the more speeches they make and the more that Job asserts his innocence, the more accusatory and insulting they become toward him. And Job famous, I think it's in chapter 16, you are miserable comforters. How did God feel about it? Well, he tells us in chapter 42, his wrath was kindled against these men. You have not spoken right. You have done foolishly. Be very careful when you are counseling a broken person. And if your words are not the words of God, be quiet. Well, Elihu is going to speak after the three friends have their three cycles with Job. Elihu is a younger man. Now, rightfully so, he waited to speak until the elders had spoken. Elihu is also mad at Job. Because Job won't take any responsibility for the suffering that he's enduring. Elihu's views on suffering are more progressive, however, than the other three men. He believes that there is more to it than cold, hard karma. So we could say he's a voice of the progressive wisdom of the day. He basically says three things. Number one, God is almighty and just. Amen? Uh, Job, if anyone's right, it's God. And if anyone's wrong, it's you. And if anyone was right and wrong, that was certainly true. Next, punishment may not be his only purpose for suffering. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Elihu says, God may be chastening you. He may be correcting you. Perhaps for something you haven't done yet, or he's trying to keep you from doing evil in the future. And he has one more point. Job, you have sinned by accusing God. You have maintained total innocence in the matter and put this completely in the lap of God. You've sinned, and Job had not sinned. And the Bible's clear. Now, how does Job respond to the three friends? And what's going on in his heart and mind? Well, Job basically says, first of all, I'm innocent. You guys say this is because of my sin, but I'm innocent. Look at chapter 26, if you will. Chapter 27, excuse me, verse 1. Moreover, Job continued his parables and said, As God liveth, who hath taken away my judgment, and the Almighty who hath vexed my soul, all the while my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips shall not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. God forbid that I should justify you. Till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. 
Basically, you guys say that sin is the cause of my suffering. I have not sinned against God, and there is nothing you can get me to do that will cause me to admit it. Whatever the cause of all this is, it's not my sin. Is that right? Yes. Uh, God says that perfectly in chapter 1, that Job was perfect. This did not happen as a result of God punishing him for sin. The second thing he says is, my suffering is not just. Look over at chapter 3, if you will. And I want you to stay with me. We'll put a bow on all this and tie it together here in just a minute. Look at verse 3. The day perished wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, there is a man-child conceived. Let that day be darkness. Let God not regard it from above, neither let the light shine upon it. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined unto the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Look over uh, at verse 25. The thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of has come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. Job basically says, I don't deserve all this trouble that I'm experiencing, and I wish I'd never been born to go through it. Is Job right about that? Yes. He did not deserve all of this. This was an example of a just and righteous man suffering. Now, his last point is problematic. God may have purposes for my suffering, and I demand to know them. Look at chapter 23. Verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, speaking about God, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put his strength in me. In other words, if I knew where to find God, I'd walk right up into the throne room of the universe and ask him to explain himself. Now, in the midst of some of this that's wrong, there's a lot of right. Look, for instance, at chapter 23, verse 10. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job is holding on to faith here. Do you see it? I'm not suffering because I'm sinful. God's not punishing me. He may be purging me, doing something for me, not against me. But God, would you please explain yourself so I know what in the world is going on? We often suffer, but we only sometimes understand. Please don't miss this. When we look at God through the lens of our circumstances, we will always end up with a distorted view of God. We try to understand who he is by what's happening in our life. To gauge the level of his goodness by the amount of his goodness that we're experiencing at any particular moment, that's dangerous. As someone has said, God is doing 10,000 things in our lives and we see three of them. He's so much bigger than we are. His plan is so complex, we can never understand it. So what we have to learn how to do is look at our circumstances through the lens of God. God is almighty. God is just. God is good. I may not feel it, but those things are true. And I must believe them. We often suffer, 
We only sometimes understand. After all the speeches, the most important speaker of all shows up in chapter 38. I want you to look there with me, if you will. And that's God. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, who is talking about things he does not understand? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Job, you wanted to have a conversation? Let's talk. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. And for the next four chapters, God asked Job 41 questions, and Job can't answer one of them. Here's God's argument to Job and the three friends. First of all, I am almighty and just. Amen. The second point is, I am also infinitely wise. Job, were you around when I laid the foundations of the earth? Can you cause the sunrise? Do you arrange the constellations? Do you know the mating patterns of the mountain goat? (laughs) Did you design the color of the peacock's feathers? Job, you and your friends think you can run the universe better than me? Really? Look at chapter 40. Verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Job, speak up. Tell me how you can do things better. You want to contend with me? He goes on to say, Can you defeat the behemoth and Leviathan? Those are just two beasts that I made. I made them with my breath. You want to demand something from me? It may seem harsh, but I think Job got the point. Job, I am almighty and just. Job, I am infinitely wise. I've been at this a long time and I'm very smart. Here's the third point. It's the point of the entire book. Job, the basis of your trust is not your understanding of your circumstances. You don't trust me just because you understand what I'm doing in your life. The basis of your trust is not your understanding of your circumstances. It's mine. Job, you don't understand what I'm doing now any more than you understand how I make the sunrise or set or any more how I flung the stars into the heavens. Job, don't just trust in me when you understand what I'm doing. Trust in me because you trust that I understand what I'm doing. All of you guys think that you can fit my infinite wisdom in your finite little brains. You can't. Your capacity for wisdom is so much smaller than mine, so trust mine. (laughs) How many of you have ever flown out of DFW Airport before? Yeah, I have. I fly out of there fairly often. It's a massive place. Um, We have the Gibsons here from New York City. Did you guys know that DFW Airport is the same landmass as Manhattan Island? Same amount of acres. It's unbelievable. You have all these different terminals and all these different runways. Planes going in a thousand different directions, coming in and taking off every half minute. 
It's really incredible. Now, if you sit in the seat in 11E and you look out the window, you're going to think nobody is organizing all this chaos. Every once in a while, they'll ferry me from one terminal to a runway that's all the way on the other side of the airport, and I will think, what in the world is the air traffic controller thinking? I've been on this jetway for 30 minutes. And I want to be honest, I get a little angry about those things, and I'd like to stop the flight and demand to see the controller's plan. From my vantage point, my little seat in 11E, it looks like things are chaotic, out of control. Like one plane might hit another plane. Like there could be no good reason for me spending 30 minutes on a jetway. But there is someone with a vantage point at DFW Airport that's a whole lot taller than mine. There is someone with a lot more experience and knowledge about airspeed and ground speed and flight schedules and arranging the comings and goings of flight terminals. And that is the air traffic controller. I can demand to see the plan or 11E or I can sit back, put on my headphones and just trust the plan of the controller. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if that's true about an airport, how much more true is it about the universe? <laughs> can you even imagine what God manages in a moment? Now, that's the point of these chapters in the book of Job. Think for just a moment about some of the good things that have happened in your life, not in spite of bad things, but because of bad things. Don't all of us have some stories like Joseph and like Daniel? We thought things were going in the wrong direction and things were really a disaster and God had fallen off his throne and the universe had slipped out of his control, but all of a sudden, in a moment, he turned it around and brought something good out of it. And where would we be without it? Sure. The basis of our trust is not our understanding of our circumstances. It is our trust and understanding of God's character. So Job asked, and we'll finish here. Why do the righteous suffer? And God says, Job, I'm not telling you. Job and his friends want God to defend himself in the way the world is. They want to put God on trial. He's not going to participate. He is not interested in their theodicy. He says, I made you, I don't have to answer to you. (laughs) Instead of theodicy, he gives them theology and he puts them on trial. The question in Job is not why is there pain in the world? God says you couldn't possibly understand all the reasons for that. The real question is, will you trust me even when I don't immediately bless you and even when I don't explain why you're going through what you're going through? That is the real question of suffering for the child of God. And once you nail that down, that God is absolutely trustworthy no matter how out of control your life or universe may seem, then every other question about suffering fades into oblivion. And that's what the book of Job is about. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this book of the Bible. Perhaps the earliest book of the Bible that ask one of the biggest and most emotional questions of the human experience. Why do we suffer so when we do not deserve it? And every person here has asked you why. And it's okay to ask. You often do not answer. Help us to see suffering as an invitation to trust in the very things we are tempted to doubt. Your goodness, your power, 
your justice. And perhaps some sufferer would say, I don't have to have all the answers. God, you are calling me closer to you. I will trust you even when I do not understand you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.